The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. It's Wednesday, October the 27th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. We have been wanting for a while to catch up with our Europe correspondent, Naomi O'Leary, both because of issues which form a central part of her beat, such as the, the ongoing fractious negotiations over the Northern Ireland Protocol and other probably more significant challenges or even existential ones like the current Polish crisis facing the EU. But also because I do think that we in Ireland still view other issues such as COVID, for example, far too much through the prism of what's happening in the United Kingdom or even the United States rather than what is sometimes more relevantly happening in Europe. So Naomi, we have no shortage of things to talk about. You're very welcome. Hi, Hugh. Great to be on. Maybe first of all, we could we could turn to COVID and for the last few weeks, we've been hearing a lot in Ireland about our, our very high rates, despite our high rate of vaccination. People have been pointing out our proximity to the UK and drawing unfavourable comparisons with what's happening in Western Europe, if not in Eastern Europe, where it's a different picture entirely. In Western Europe, numbers have been very low for a while, but are we beginning to see a change? Yes, definitely. So we saw a 70% rise suddenly uh, week on week in Belgium uh, last week, which sort of, um, I guess, scared everybody um similar situation in the neighboring netherlands um there the rates had been under control um as you say in eastern europe infections but sort of perhaps more worryingly hospitalizations and deaths had been extremely high i mean we're talking about the sort of, sort of rates that we saw in the the kind of worst days of the pandemic as we remember them back in march 2020 um you know with populations with relatively you know s- small um, numbers of people in their population, but seeing like hundreds of deaths a day in places like uh, Romania, for example, um, and and Bulgaria. Uh, but that that has been linked to the fact that those countries have an extraordinarily low vaccination rate. So in Bulgaria, it's still only about twenty five percent, and in Romania, something around I think it was thirty thirty five percent. So very low take up there. Um, but yeah, the sudden rise in Western Europe where rates are very high, you know, in some places approaching 100% coverage, that has raised concerns about what's ahead in the winter. And in Belgium, all eyes were fixed on a meeting of the sort of coronavirus steering group, um, which announced yesterday that some measures would be reintroduced, uh, including the expansion of the use of COVID passes to access public venues like restaurants and so on, and also um, masks as well. The the rules have been always a bit different depending on the region that you're in in Belgium. And in Brussels, everybody's just continued wearing masks indoors all the time, but in, in some regions had dropped them. So now they're all to be reassumed uh, mandatory indoor masking. And um, yeah, you have to have a COVID pass to get into a lot of um, public venues. So would it be fair to say then that in that in most parts of Belgium, the restrictions will be similar to what we have here in Ireland now? I think so. As far as I know, as far as I'm sort of familiar with what the case is in Ireland, yes, um, pretty much the same. Um, they, in general, I think that governments are very reluctant to start blanket closing things. 
uh, and they're more targeting restrictions to sort of give people more freedom if they're vaccinated. Um, so to, to kind of try and manage it that way. We have seen some countries in the EU towards the east reintroduce blanket type restrictions. Latvia was the first country to go back into what we could call a lockdown for one month, closing schools and non-essential shops and so on. And some other neighbouring states have also introduced that kind of restrictions like nighttime curfews. Um, you know, you're not allowed out between 8pm and 5am, that kind of rule. That's been quite a, like, th that's what sort of nighttime curfew has been quite common on the continent. But I don't think it's something that Ireland ever introduced. It's one of the differences. Yeah, they say they seem to prefer curfews for some reason. And we don't we don't like them in this part of the world for whatever reason. I mean, looking at the Eastern European numbers, as you say, clearly one of the one of the key driving factors is the is the remarkably low level of vaccination in some countries in Central and Eastern Europe. Given that the vaccination programme is an EU-wide programme, although, of course, administered by, by at the national government level, and the EU is, you know, relatively proud of the fact, proclaims the fact that, that in total, I think, well over 70% of the adult population of the EU has been, has been vaccinated. Is there an EU element to this, to how, how these countries, countries like Bulgaria and Romania and the Baltic countries, um, might get a grip on this, which seems to be, from what I gather, in some of those countries... Um, threatening to overwhelm their health systems. Yeah, the situation is extremely serious in some of those countries. Um, I mean, hospitals, ICUs, completely just unable to cope. Too many people, you know, they're running out of space in morgues. Th those kind of grim, grim scenes um, that we associate with the most desperate days that we remember of the pandemic. Um, overall in the EU, the vaccination rate of those eligible is over 75% now. And what we've seen is that the introduction introduction of COVID passes has been quite successful in reaching that last bit of the population who haven't been vaccinated. So some people might just take their time to get around to it for one reason or another. And this seems to be a kind of a, an impetus that helps people to get around to uh, to getting it done. Um, so we saw a big jump in uh, various countries, including France and Belgium, once it was tied to, you know, being able to return to a norm more normal life. Um, the reasons for the differentiated uh, vaccination rates in different countries are no doubt extremely complex. Uh, some of the suggestions, though, uh, that are brought up is that in Eastern Europe, um, these ex-Soviet states, the issue of vaccinations was very much politicized. It was a sort of an arena for geopolitical rivalry using vaccines um, during the pandemic, both China and Russia used vaccines as, um, I suppose, for propaganda purposes to present themselves as saviours. Um, so if you could get an EU country to say, the EU hasn't helped us, we're waiting for vaccines, no one is helping us, and in the meantime, Russia's come to the rescue or China's come to the rescue or whatever. It was, it was the same with PP as well as vaccine. That was a sort of a, like a win for, um, for Beijing and Moscow. And it was, it was used in this sort of, in terms of geopolitical influence. So the the whole issue of vaccines was not separate from politics. And this perhaps played into a low level of trust in terms of what these substances were and the kind of whether you would take a, you know, take the choice to put them into your body. Um, so it was uh, kind of somewhat mixed in with the real politics from the outset rather than being a kind of a apolitical medical scientific issue.
And we know from other countries, like the United States, that politicising the issues of vaccines uh, can have a very negative effect on take-up. Yes. And, um, well, from what I understand, it's not my area of expertise, but there is sort of a low level of trust in authorities, which may have played into it. Um, but there is, right now, Romania has actually asked for help from other European countries under the civil protection mechanism, which is something that countries usually ask for, say, if they've got, like, wildfires that they can't control or an earthquake or something like that they they trigger this help mechanism where it calls on other eu member states to send them aid and romania just triggered that and in response you know eu countries are sending them oxygen um medicine uh, equipment ventilators to deal with all of the sick people um that are overwhelming their hospitals so it's it's really sad and i i think that there's a real frustration about it i think in some uh, parts of the EU that, you know, the vaccines are available, you know, the vaccines were procured and they were available, but there's been a, a failure at national level to convince people that this is, the, that this will protect them, you know, to, um, and and in, in response then we're, we're seeing these, these desperate scenes continue. Mm. And then back to where you are in Belgium and, and the Benelux countries, this, this rise over the last weeks and the, and the, and the response to that, where do people think that's coming from? Is that, you know, I mean, we've seen these kinds of patterns before with COVID over the last 18 months, that countries seem to have very low levels and people are making kind of comparisons or maybe even moral judgments at times, unjustified though those may be. And then suddenly the numbers start rising. Is it seasonal? Is it about people being indoors more? Like everywhere, um, the predominant distinguishing factor among the people who are ending up in ICU and dying is that they are unvaccinated. The small number of unvaccinated people are completely disproportionately represented in those who are getting seriously sick and dying from COVID. Um, But there are unvaccinated people as well who are getting serious outcomes from it. I mean, what we're hearing from the global health authorities is that what we've seen is we've seen most countries pretty much drop all restrictions in Europe. They don't really exist to a meaningful extent in most countries at this point. And this happened simultaneously as we had a return to mass gatherings indoors because of the colder weather. Um, So obviously schools and so on, but also things like just gatherings in people's houses and restaurants and Obviously, that kind of enclosed environment where everybody is breathing the same air with an airborne disease, that is like the perfect environment for it to spread. And these infections among people who are uh, who are vaccinated currently, I think there's a lot of research going on into, you know, what is the causes for that? Some people, of course, just remain vulnerable. Some people are, have diseases. Some people are old or failure or have vulnerabilities that they don't even know about, which makes them more susceptible to become more ill. Um, there's also, you know, some research going into whether efficacy wanes after a while of the vaccine. Um, but overall, you know, what you hear from basically all the health authorities is that the vaccine continues to give a very high level of protection. And so the calculations, as as in Ireland, are somewhat different, quite different, in fact, from what they would have been at the time of last winter's uh, spike or wave because because of that protection which the which the vaccines still afford to the majority of the population. I think also governments are, you know, they, I think they are just extremely reluctant to return to blanket level restrictions um, because the issue, you know, I think they worry about how sustainable it is. And um, at this point, we don't have a choice to eliminate the disease, really. Like it's become endemic, it's everywhere. Um, So it's a question of managing it. And I think that many governments are reluctant to impose 
blanket level restrictions at this point or to return to that. But it's not out of the question. It, it, it's, it seems unthinkable until you start to see hospitals unable to cope and extremely horrible scenes of deaths and so on. And that always changes the public attitude towards what's thinkable or not and, and the attitude of the governments as well. Because once you're facing a situation that's out of control, you have to take extraordinary action. I want to turn to another issue now, which um, which we've we've discussed a little bit about Ireland. It's affecting Ireland because I think it's affecting most countries around the world. But maybe we're not sure of how it operates in the pan-European context, and that's the uh, the supply problem with energy this winter and electricity supplies. Questions in Ireland of whether there will be sufficient supply that might be as much to do with the provision of, of of power stations and things. But also, we know that energy prices are going up. There's questions about gas. Is that a big domestic issue where you are? It's the dominant story across Europe for the last few weeks, as far as I can see, is energy prices. It's not so much COVID. Um, every I flick through the international news channels um, that I have just to check like what the main stories are. And just the price of the electricity bills that people are receiving in their home is causing like real outrage and fear because particularly for families on lower incomes, it threatens to just, you know, just just tip them over into accruing debt or, you know, finding themselves in a crisis situation. Um, and there are so many p- people who fall into that bracket that it's a serious problem for national governments across Europe. And um, there's real rage about it in places like Italy and Spain. Um, there's real upset. So governments are scrambling to try and find a, a response to this. There's been a big extraordinary summit on the issue involving all the EU countries uh, this week, just yesterday. And you saw a division there between countries, including Ireland, which essentially say this isn't a matter for that the policies that there are to address it are national. The best policies available are national ones. So that's things like cutting taxes and offering subsidies uh, to people on lower incomes like the Irish government has done. Um, But there are differing points of view. Some other member states called for things like to use the joint procurement practice like like the EU did with vaccines to do that except for with gas so to get cheaper prices by jointly negotiating and there was a call for that also for joint storage from Spain and France called for changes to how the energy market works currently uh, prices are linked to the gas price um it's a rather complex issue but the even if you say in France like has predominantly nuclear energy they are still seeing high prices because of the way that energy is priced in the overall market, taking into account gas prices, wholesale gas prices. So they called for that system to be changed. But Ireland joined a group of nine member states in saying, let's not doing anything rash. Let's not start tinkering with how the EU energy market works. At this moment in time, this is something temporary. It's a temporary spike. It's a combination of things like rising demand in Asia and sort of tight supplies coming from Russia and this sort of sudden dramatic return to economic activity, plus the winter season altogether is causing this spike. And so they expect for it to wane off by spring. And in the meantime, they're saying this just proves the point that we need to move away from fossil fuels towards renewable energy, because apart from being necessary to curb like the prospect of catastrophic climate change, it's also an energy independence issue. It's about not being reliant on sort of major world powers where there might be instability or there could be nefarious actors. Um, so that's essentially there. there isn't unanimity right now about some sort of EU level response to this. And it's been sort of thrown back down to to 
individual countries to to give a response to it. And where do the fault lines lie in that? I mean, how much is this, you know, a discussion of the pragmatic practicalities of the best way to approach this and an argument that on that basis, it's better for the EU to jointly approach it with that joint procurement process, which you described? Or how much of it is about differing views of what the competencies of the EU should be vis-a-vis the member states? Definitely what distinguished the nine member states plus Ireland, uh, including Ireland, that don't want EU level intervention is that they're generally frugal on these issues they have are spending their national funds on addressing this issue and they've done that and now they don't want to contribute to the national funds of other countries um to help them do that they're saying you know this is the time for you to to use your own revenues to address this and we're not that interested in in sort of clubbing together for an eu approach to this at the moment um also uh, the other sort of distinguishing factor is that countries like Italy in particular, um, but also France, particularly Italy, though, they always want more from the EU. So they're always looking for EU responses uh, to things like this, that the EU should be more powerful, more dynamic, addressing more of the real problems in people's lives, particularly when it comes to like social issues, like quality of life issues, employment, even you know housing, things like that. They generally want more EU. But then, of course, there are many member states who usually call for less EU all the time. So that's that's another dividing line. So that's the same, uh, without oversimplifying it, that's the same kind of north-south division that we've seen on so many issues over the last decade. Yeah, it is somewhat like it does it does fall more or less along those lines. I think in, in this particular energy issue, it's like Ireland, Netherlands, some Baltic states, Finland, Austria. So yeah, kind of the, the usual suspects in terms of taking a frugal approach to EU stuff. I mean, energy security is such a huge issue for any developed economy, including the in, including the countries of the EU, and and you know questions such as the, the the building of the Nord Stream gas pipeline from from Russia to Germany have been you know major geopolitical issues over the last while. And plus, it seems to me that there's no such thing as a coherent EU energy policy. Is there? Just look at the different approaches to nuclear energy between France and Germany. This is a really interesting fiery debate that's going on right now in the EU. And the person who's kind of caught in the eye of the storm of this is actually Ireland's commissioner, Mairead McGuinness. Um, so France is very wedded to nuclear power. It um, it's it does not have a problem with energy supply right now because it's got many nuclear power stations. And they believe that this is the part of the solution to cutting carbon emissions because nuclear does not is a low carbon energy source. Um, but this view is very fiercely resisted in Germany. Um, Germany started to phase out its nuclear power in response to the 2011 Fukushima disaster in Japan. Um, there's a very old tradition there of green opposition to nuclear because of the issue of nuclear waste and the potential for nuclear accidents. And that's those two camps have just gone fiercely against each other uh, for months now over, over how to treat nuclear when it comes to the uh, climate transition. And there's also a number of states that call for gas to be included as well as a transition fuel. So as an alternative, say if the other choice would be coal, to kind of sanction gas as a fuel to be that's better than coal in some circumstances, say. Um, this matters because Mairead McGuinness is currently in charge of, as Commissioner for Financial Services, drawing up basically a big list of the kinds of investments that count as green and the Commission, the European Commission is producing this list of official green investments, it's called the taxonomy, as a way to drive money 
into green investments to because according to their calculation 350 billion euro a year will be needed in order to fund the transition to reach the EU's climate objective of 2030 which is to cut carbon emissions by 55%. So if with this taxonomy it means that you can raise green bonds um money that's raised on the financial markets to be directed towards green investment um and certain companies, certain activities, certain sectors can be officially classified as green and receive all of this money. So this is massively contentious. What is going to be on this list and what isn't? Is nuclear going to be on it? Is gas going to be on it? And in what circumstances is there going to be some sort of sunset clause for gas? And there's this huge row. And McGinnis has to come out with this, she hopes, by the end of the year, because it's just been stalled because of these huge divisions. Um, but uh, I think the signs that we're getting certainly over the past week is that nuclear will be included, um, that they're going to say that, yes, we need a stable source of energy. Renewables aren't there yet. They're not producing enough energy that we need. So, you know, nuclear is is going to be included and that gas will be considered somehow as a transitional fuel. It'll be accommodated for in some way. That's absolutely fascinating, actually. And I mean, I think, in my view, anyway, that's the single biggest issue facing the EU over the next over the next um, couple of decades. So it could be really interesting to see how they resolve and and move on with those. I suppose the the, the immediate point of crisis facing the EU is this uh, row. Probably is isn't a strong enough word for it. This um, conflict that has blown up with the Polish government and the Polish Supreme Court over a judgment by the by the Polish court in the last few weeks. Yeah, uh, it's been a huge blow up but the member states met last week for a European Council summit so all of the national leaders gathered together and basically decided to calm down the situation and not to confront Poland but to try and take the tension out of this and not go head to head on the issue which is really interesting the european commission had basically been gearing up to use a new rule that it has which ultimately could strip poland of receiving eu funds which would be really really serious for the country the way it would work is if you can prove that eu money is being wasted because there isn't rule of law so there isn't like an independent judicial system say then you could actually just like turn off the tap of eu funds which would be massively serious it would take about a year, maybe, for the whole process to like legally work through. And the Commission had sort of, to my understanding anyway, begun preparing the preliminary work for that stuff and was moving towards, towards doing it. But then the member states have kind of put the brakes on it. Uh, it's, it's really interesting. It's been an approach that's very much characterized the like the era of Angela Merkel as Chancellor of Germany, that she constantly seeks to build bridges with Eastern European countries and to diffuse arguments like this, because I think she sees them as ultimately only destructive and something that could tear apart the EU and that you constantly need to find the common ground, de-escalate and take the poison out of the row. But you know, her critics say that this has ultimately led to the spread of authoritarianism in within the EU in Central and Eastern Europe. Now there's Poland, Hungary and Slovenia to a certain extent on the same path uh, so that it hasn't been effective in stopping this. And now this stronger block of authoritarian leaning countries is is in a position, has the power to really shape what the EU becomes. And we are already seeing that in some areas, including migration policy. 
So just to clarify on that, uh, I mean, where, where this arose from was there's been a there's been a conflict between the EU and, and Poland for several years about the government's reshaping of its own judicial system, which it is argued now contravenes um, EU requirements for, for a completely free and independent judiciary. And then that process itself came to a head with that ruling by the court. And I suppose one of the things I wondered when, in as much as I understand that ruling, is that it argued or it argued against one of the key principles of the of the European Union, which is that uh, the courts are ultimately subject to broader European law. Now, mind you, there's some countries that don't necessarily go along with that anyway, do they? Including Germany. There was a very, very notable German case in the, in the, in the last couple of years as well. So is it possible that it was there was just a can of worms involved there in addressing that judgment head on because of that? You're right to bring up the context of this in terms of the erosion of judicial independence in Poland. You know, what the European Court of Justice has essentially ruled is that the Warsaw government the, of the, the ruling Law and Justice Party has stacked the courts with allies, that the judicial system can no longer be relied upon as independent. And that's something that actually the Irish High Court was worried about as far back as 2018, because they refused to extradite or they they asked if it was OK to extradite someone uh, to Poland because of concerns about whether that person will get a fair trial, given the lack of independence of the judiciary. So it's this long brewing issue. And the European Court of Justice, as you said, um, ruled that, you know, Poland had had breached EU law to the extent that it's interfered with the judiciary. And in response, then the government asked its constitutional court to come up with a ruling, which it duly produced, which said, well, we don't have to follow that because our constitution comes first. And, you know, the ECJ is trying to exceed its powers here and exceed its jurisdiction. And it's up to us. Um, So basically saying that they, they could ignore um, this ECJ judgment and go go ahead with their judicial reforms. But I think that context is is really important. That the the very court itself, the Polish court that produced this judgment, um, is not considered to be judicially to to be independent from political influence. Um, and I understand one of the dissenting opinions of the court was that this ruling had been produced as a strategy to um, to fight back against the ECJ ruling. So it's very much caught up in a particular political situation in Poland. In terms of the ruling itself, um, it says that certain articles of EU treaties are incompatible with the Polish constitution. Um, It's correct that over the years, many national courts have raised sort of queries, um, sometimes gone against um, the ECJ in terms of where is the boundary between the, what is the jurisdiction of the European courts and what is national jurisdiction. So obviously the EU, all of its members agree to pool their powers in certain areas and other areas are kept entirely national. An obvious one in the current situation is health. People like uh, nations could do what they want. But in those areas that they've pooled, um, they all agree when, you know, on joining that the European Court of Justice has the final say on, on interpreting EU law because you need to have the same legal constituency across the block. You can't have one law reigning in Germany and then a different law in Ireland because companies wouldn't be able to sort of operate in an environment like that. It would be too unpredictable. And also there would be there'd be worries about citizens' rights as well. The Polish government actually says, no, we're fine. We're fine with that idea that, of course, European law supersedes national law in the areas in which the EU has competence. Like We agree. Our, our disagreement, they say, 
is over what is a national competence and what is an EU competence. Um, and who gets to decide? What is the authority that gets to decide where that boundary is? Is it, is it national courts or is it the EU courts? And they have a problem with the EU courts basically deciding themselves where the boundary of their jurisdiction is. Um, that more precise issue, not on the principle of the primacy of EU law, but on the boundary and who gets to decide it, that is a weak point. And it is widely considered to be a can of worms. <laughs> because as you point out, the German constitutional court has like very long held a sort of worries about this that it finally expressed last year in a very technical ruling in a kind of mild way that wasn't a, like a, it didn't end up being a massive problem. But over the years, there are just loads of examples from different member states. Um, it is a bit of a can of worms. And I think yet yeah, that is partly the reason why the national leaders don't want to have a fight on this, because it's basically the Polish government choosing the grounds of the fight very carefully on terrain that is going to be very messy and that, you know, is advantageous to its own arguments. Because it it's basically, it's, it's, it's really great sort of sloganeering for a nationalist electorate to talk about how your constitution is sovereign and the EU is exceeding its powers and all this kind of thing. It's, it's like a perfect sort of political campaigning issue. <laughs> um, and they don't want to have the row over that. So they've turned the argument back to focus on the fact that the very courts that produce this judgment are not independent, because there they're on much more solid ground um, in terms of the weaknesses in the Polish judicial system. And I wonder, listening to you on that, and 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 your your initial point there about about Angela Merkel's policy, whatever people may think of it, you know, arguably possibly enabling the rise of authoritarianism in in countries such as Poland or Hungary. Obviously, Angela Merkel is is on her way out the door. I was reading a piece by the um, the academic Helen Thompson, who we've had on this podcast, I should say, in the New York Times yesterday, and she was arguing that because of the uh, the present process of of change at the top in Germany, which is ongoing, the negotiations on a on a new coalition and the impending French elections as well, is that what we can expect from from the EU over the next year or so, at least is a period of very little in other words a kind of frozen period because it's unclear what you know what the clear voices are and what 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 the path ahead is and it's going to be unclear for a while what what that's going to be definitely yes on some issues the debate is basically frozen until we know who the next german chancellor is going to be so that that is true but um i haven't heard people predict that it's going to be a year or something like that Every person you ask has a different theory about why the national leaders didn't want a conflict with Poland on this at the moment. Like, everyone has their own pet theory. It's like, some say, oh, they want to concentrate on all of these other issues like energy prices, and they don't want Poland to just start blocking things and feel backed into a corner and just not cooperate and just, like, jam up all progress in the EU on all issues. Some say it's all about the French election. This sort of issue about national sovereignty and e national courts versus EU courts is sort of, like being taken up by all sides, centre-left to centre-right on the French election, which is, you know, sort of a competition to who can be most kind of right-leaning, it seems, and that, you know, this is just something that we need to sort of calm down. Other people say it's, it was actually a real personal thing. So it's like the, the leaders didn't want to spoil the final summit of Angela Merkel, which would be her 107th, like after 16 years. Like it, they didn't want it to be ruined by this big fight with Poland when she spent her whole sort of political career trying to build bridges with other people that are coming from like ex 
Soviet um, situations. Like, of course, she comes from East Germany um, and that she sees her role as to try to unify Europe, to try and build bridges between East and West and avoid conflicts like this. Um, so everyone has a different theory about it. Um, so certainly, like I said, there is some arguments around pause. Um, one particular being about the EU's budget rules, where you're having a big argument now about whether the same restrictions on spending, national spending and uh, overall debt will kick in again. They've been suspended since the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic to allow countries to just borrow and spend whatever they wanted. But they're suspended, so there's an expectation that they'll have to return in some form. But now cue a sort of a campaign by states that have always hated them, <laughs> like Italy, to uh, to get rid of them or to make sure that they don't uh, return in their current form. And, you know, one member state that's considered probably the most powerful supporter of those rules, which limit your annual deficit and overall public debt, in theory anyway, is Germany. Um, and so there's everybody's waiting to see who the next chancellor will be for that row. Um, and then but what's interesting, though, in terms of the French presidential election is there's actually something different going on. Um, I don't think that debates are going to be frozen because of that. Actually, the contrary. Currently, um, uh, the president, Emmanuel Macron, is leading up to take the helm of the EU presidency in January. You know, it rotates every six months. And from January, it's going to be uh, the French one is, are going to be in charge. Um, and already we've seen France really driving, um, particularly with the political um, sort of gap that we have in Germany at the moment. France is driving all the debates in the EU about policy at the moment. It's all in response to French proposals. Um, there's, you know, Macron is sort of hyperactive in bringing forward papers and ideas for grand reforms and stuff like that. It's all building up to the French presidency. I think that he wants to clock up achievements during that time. Um, he wants to show France at the lead, you know, France amplifying its power through the EU and not being diminished by it. And uh, so there's a lot of focus on that. And he'll also want to show stuff to his domestic um, electorate when we do see the vote in May. He'll want to come back with wins from this presidency, from his time at the helm of the EU um, to show, you know, how powerful France is and and the way, you know, that the EU is, is sort of working to French advantage. So def I, th I think actually to the contrary, we'll, we'll just see a very French dominated period for for the next little while. Okay, and and that might play into my final question, actually, which is that the dreary steeples of the Northern Ireland Protocol continue to rise above the waters, certainly in our imaginations here. And I'm looking at a re report by our colleague Dennis Staunton on more belligerent noises being made by the Brexit minister, Lord Frost, to the, the House of Lords, I think it was, um, yesterday in London. How much of the imagination of the EU is is occupied by the, this issue at this point? And what are the chances of achieving some kind of resolution or are we going to drag on and into a into a um, an article 16 kind of moment the uk is an important neighboring state to the eu and quite a large economy so it's never going to be totally irrelevant um but of course everybody has wanted to move on from this for a very long time they just want to have normal relationships with the uk and for us to just forget about this and to have some sort of arrangement that's economically beneficial for everybody but I think they believe that the government in London 
sees it as politically advantageous to stoke continual conflict with the EU all the time, just for domestic political purposes. So they've resigned themselves to this just being an ongoing thing, um, that we're just going to have to continue having rows about all this all the time, threats for dramatic action from London, and then, you know, things backing down and then, you know, a new problem being found or, or whatever. Um, it's, it's ongoing. It's around the protocol. Also on France, it's worth noting that they have a, quite a serious disagreement going on as well about fishing licenses around Jersey, um, with fishing being a, quite a serious political issue in France as well. Um, then there is peril for Ireland in this because I think um, ultimately, I mean, it's acknowledged that the purpose of the protocol, the purpose of all of this arrangement. It's all about, it's, it's about finding special arrangements for Northern Ireland, but it's also about the status of the Republic in the single market. When you have, if you have to raise that question again about where do checks go and checks have to go somewhere, again, you're faced with this horrible like decision, this awful choice um, of a land border or putting them between the island of Ireland and its EU neighbours, so like in the in the border between Ireland and France, which I think probably the British government has always wanted. I mean, they it's been mentioned by conservative politicians consistently uh, throughout the sort of whole Brexit period that why what we won't be putting in checks and why doesn't Dublin put on checks in its ports and airports if it wants to have checks and on you know and why doesn't Ireland just leave the EU as well and all this kind of stuff. So I think that's very much you know their preferred outcome, um, and they're continuing to to agitate um on this issue um for for their own purposes which i can't divine but that would seem to be seen naomi no doubt that that would be seen as an absolutely gross betrayal in ireland were the eu to 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 accede to that i mean is there any prospect of that happening no oh yeah and they're not going to no 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 they're absolutely not i mean if you speak to any small member state doesn't matter how geographically far away from ireland they are they will say on this issue like the they are absolutely opposed to that happening because it's it's about precedent. If the EU abandons a small member state for the convenience of some other non-EU member, then it it just you know it collapses the entire argument of the EU, which is that being a member is better than not being a member, and that collectively the interests of member states are defended. And it's also about how seriously the EU is taken in relations with other countries. Like Ireland is not the only country which has a sort of a difficult bordering state. You know, you've got countries that border Russia, got countries that border Turkey, and the EU has difficult um, relations at times with both of these countries and needs to be taken seriously in negotiations. And when it agrees things, it needs to show that it's serious about the, that the other side actually has to follow agreements. Um, so it's not just about Britain in this sense. It's about the credibility of the EU. So all of those member states, including the little ones, um, never mind the big ones, are all completely on Ireland's side in this. People are actually quite disgusted with the British government. There's no illusions about that the, the British are somehow just being sensible or something like this. They, it, their their behaviour is very, very poorly viewed. Um, the solidarity with Ireland is it's just 100%. It's one of these really rare issues that completely unites the EU. And there, there's no way that, you know, they couldn't, they couldn't de facto exclude Ireland from the single market because of the behaviour of a state, um, on, you know, that isn't an EU member. It would just, it, it wouldn't be unacceptable. But the other choices are not great either. So the 
whole issue of enforcement um, the, the best option is that this just calms down and relations become normalized. But if London makes that impossible, then you have to look at these sort of not that pleasant enforcement um, options, which include things like tariffs, you know, include things like affecting the overall trade deal between Britain and the EU. And all of that is bad for Ireland because of our close economic intertwinement with Britain. Um, it's, you know, it, it does affect Ireland is, is, is sort of in the risk zone for even those like less bad options. And is there not a point, sorry, I said that was my final question, but this is definitely my final question. Is there not, is there not a point similar to the, the, the Polish issue where the EU has to stop, I suppose, rewarding bad behaviour and has to change the dynamics of the, the internal political incentives for Boris Johnson's government um, so, so that the pain is too much to bear and they will come to the table and do a deal on these issues? Yeah, I think in both cases, there's always a balance. Um, I think you would see like always France pushing for a harder line. Um, there was a lot of, there was a lot of misgivings among member states about offering this new compromise on the protocol. Like they were really like, you know, th- th- this is sort of giving in to brinkmanship from London. There was a lot of worries expressed to the commission about that. Like this better work, guys, because, you know, we we can't keep we don't want to appear to constantly pander to this sort of hardline brinkmanship um and you know france would be very much in the lead in terms of having misgivings about that then there's another calculation and and in a way they they've been proved right haven't they since the since since the concessions were announced because essentially uh, frost has just pocketed them and shown them as proof they can get more concessions and yeah thrown them back in their face yeah the the other the other concern is that when you're dealing with national governments that are doing this for domestic political purposes, what that government wants is for the EU to behave like the big bag EU, you know, the, the, to behave like the villain and to sort of vindicate what they're saying about it. That's why there's this approach by the Commission, which is always to de-escalate and appear really reasonable and take on, a bo- on board all of these things and, and, and talk about peace and so on, just refuse to take that villain role. I think it's just a really, really difficult question. Like it's a very, it's a very difficult strategic question about what the best response to this is. But yet, I, I mean, at a certain point, I think um, conciliation and so on, it, it does actually have a limit. Um, and the agreement has all of these enforcement options written down within it which are like they are that's international law now um and if the conciliation options just continue to be to be shut off that's you know that's what's left Naomi O'Leary thanks very much indeed for joining us you can follow Naomi's reports and analysis in the Irish Times and on irishtimes.com that's it for today thanks to our producer Declan Conlon and our engineer JJ Vernon Uh, do mail us with your thoughts and any questions at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com we'll see you again very soon